Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. We're going to continue our series this morning in the time we have remaining on For the Sake of the World. For the Sake of the World in Really, this is not a series on how to do evangelism better, or it's not a series on how to get people to like share their faith. It's nothing like that. The first Sunday, we talked about who the gospel is. We talked about how Jesus is the good news. Jesus himself embodies the gospel. He is the good news. And over the course of the last two weeks, we talked about what the gospel is. We sort of, by definition, uh, talked about what we have, as followers of Jesus, been saved from and what we've been saved to. Sort of like a two-part death and resurrection, Good Friday, Easter kind of combo within the context of the larger series. And as we were planning the series, the team and I felt that it was really important to not spend the entirety of our times here together on Sunday morning defining what the gospel is. I sort of compare it to the um, genocide in Rwanda years ago. You know, as Rwandans were, uh, the, the Hutus and the Tutsis were slaughtering one another in the streets, the West through the UN sat in business meetings trying to decide if what was going on in Rwanda was a genocide or not. Like, how do you define that? I mean, how many lives need to be lost? And that's what we Christians do a lot of times when it comes to the subject of evangelism or sharing our faith in Jesus with others. We sit in a room and we say, well, what is the gospel really? Theologians have spent, and I'm not, this is no knock on theologians, but theologians have spent their lifetime trying to figure out the exact precise definition of what the gospel is and how to share the gospel. And so we felt it was really important not to kind of be stuck in that zone of defining what the gospel means. Rather, We sense that Jesus wants to embody the gospel through us so that it would bring the gospel out of our intellect and into our praxis. That we would, um, yes, have a working definition of what the gospel is in order to understand uh, how to share it with others, him with others. We need to first understand what it is. Yes, I hear that. But sometimes we suffer from like theological amnesia. When it comes to actually doing and uh, putting feet to pavement, we tuck ourselves away in a corner and say, well, do we really know what it is? Do we re- are we really sure of what it means to share the gospel? And I'm right there in the boat with you, and so I'm praying, as you should be praying, Lord, equip me through these teachings, through this message series, would you equip me so that I feel compelled to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. And here's the truth, that this morning I could give you all sorts of reasons of why we should share the gospel, but that won't make any difference. Giving reasons why we should share the gospel 
will not move us into action. What compels us, the church of Jesus, to share the good news with others? Why would we feel compelled to ever do that, to offer Jesus to others? Well, I know this for certain, that guilt is not a good motivator at all. So can we just acknowledge that in the room? No one's trying to lay a guilt trip. Oh, you, I, should, I should feel like I, I need to share Jesus with them. Like guilt is the worst motivator. Some of you hear your parents' voices in the back of your mind, like trying to get you to clean your room or whatever. Guilt is never a good, maybe I'm speaking a word to parents this morning. <laughs> guilt is never a great motivator. You know what else is not a great motivator? Fear. To try to convince you that if you don't share the gospel, you should be afraid of God's judgment or wrath upon you. That's not really a great motivator either. Jesus never deals in fear, does he? Duty, what about duty? Duty might compel some personalities, but duty, uh, obligation is, is not really an effective why, is it? Then what? What would compel us to share the gospel with others? Pew Research, the Barna Research Group, uh, Campus Crusade for Christ crew have done extensive research on this subject. Extensive. You could take your cell phone out right now and Google, and within five seconds, figure out why Christians don't share their faith. You could find hundreds of sites and blogs. For all the reasons why people share their faith in Jesus. You could do that and find all the reasons why they don't. I did it this past week. When you search the reasons on Google why people share their faith and why people don't share their faith, you'll find answers like this. You'll find all sorts of sites and authors saying, well, hell is real. And that's why we should share our faith. You might find a reason that we should share our faith stating the Bible commands us. Or that sharing our faith strengthens our own faith. When we share it with others, it strengthens our own faith. You, you might read that obedience is the evidence to our own salvation. Things like that. You might even read that to remain silent is a sin! Exclamation point. You may even read that when you share your faith with others, it'll deepen your own prayer life. When you Google the reasons for why Christians don't share their faith, you'll get the same variety of answers. But the main answers that always come back through extensive research boil down to just a few key reasons. Christians don't share their faith out of a, uh, out of a desire to be friendly. We just, want, we just want to get along with our neighbors. We just want to make good with the, our acquaintances or our friends or, or family. And so we don't, want, we don't want to stir the pot too much. Don't want to be canceled in that way, right? It's one of the reasons why Christians don't share their faith. Or the other, which is what they all center around, which is fear. The main reason why you and I choose not to share our faith in Jesus with others is out of fear. We're afraid. We're afraid to say the wrong thing. We're afraid of what others might think about us. We're afraid that they uh, 
that we don't have the answers to folks' questions. We're afraid of failing. We're afraid of all sorts of things when it comes to sharing our faith with others. Fear keeps Christians from sharing Jesus with others. There, I gave you all of the reasons. Do you feel motivated to share your faith? Nope. You still don't, do you? It's not enough. Reasons why we should and reasons why we don't share Jesus with others, it's not strong enough to motivate us. You could have all of the reasons why you should and still not. You could have all of the reasons why you don't and remain there. Reasons aren't strong enough to compel us into action. To motivate us to share Jesus with others, we need something else. Something that operates at a deeper level than guilt or statistics. Deeper than logical reasons for why we shouldn't, or why we should and why we don't. We need something deeper. Something that is compelling. Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus had great compassion for the people that he taught and that he healed. The Lord looked at them and he saw people who were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, he said. Matthew tells us that Jesus responded by telling his disciples this. The harvest, he said, is plentiful, but the workers are very few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I'm on 480 and somebody, like, cuts me off, or I'm just stuck have any of you been stuck on the 480 bridge between east and west? Just stacked? Who's been stuck on that bridge? Oh my gosh. I don't know about you guys, but in that moment, I'm not really looking around at all of the sea of humanity, of traffic, of Cleveland traffic, people in my city, and praying, Oh Lord, would you send workers to the harvest? Save their souls when, when, they, when they cut me. Like, Jesus loves all of you so much. I'm more thinking, and you are too, if we're honest with one another, why did that idiot just cut me off? Why are there so, why, why is the sea of traffic making me late to my next appointment? I wish you would all just disappear. Praying that the Lord of the harvest, who loves each and every person who's stuck on traffic, even the guy who cut in front of you on 480, loves them dearly, is like the last thing on my mind a lot of times. But, thank the Lord, Jesus is on a different level than we are. He prays 
The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Send out workers to his harvest field. What would he say? What would Jesus say if he saw so many sheep without a shepherd in our city, in our nation, in other nations around the world? The truth is our planet is in desperate need of people who are compelled to share the hope of Jesus Christ. We, church, you who claim Jesus, we are heaven's solution to earthly problems. There is no plan B. Isn't that crazy? Isn't it crazy that in the, in the brilliance of God, in the wonder of God's mind in his heart, that he chooses the local church to partner with him to save the world. That is mind-blowing to me. That, that a group of 50, that a group of 100, that a group of 10,000, they, that they would be the vehicle in which the gospel of Jesus moves forth. If it were up to you and me and we were in God's place, which we're not, you engineers in the room, I know you could think of probably 80 more efficient ways to share the gospel with the entire world so that every nation would hear, that every ear would hear. You engineers, if it were a business meeting and God the Father were like, hey, how are we going to do it? How are we going to let everybody know about my son Jesus who died on the cross to forgive our sins and raise from the grave? How are we going to let everybody know about it? Us engineer types us building organizational types would have a think tank and we'd sit down and we'd say, well, we got to get on Twitter. Well, we got to get on. So, I mean, the marketing plan here has got to be, I mean, forefront and all that. God's like, nope. I'm going to use a ragtag group of 12 fishermen. How's that sound for a plan? <laughs> Great. Yeah, that'll work. And the genius of who God is, the beauty of who he is, he chooses broken men and women like you and me. One step at a time. He chooses small things. He chooses weak things. He chooses unintelligent things to spread the good news about who Jesus is. That's beautiful. That's a miracle that God would choose someone like you or someone like me to carry this thing of Jesus' presence around and offer it to folks who are dying. Not through any other means will it happen. The world will not be saved through the latest Instagram meme that tries to point us to Jesus but is ineffective. That's not the way that it comes. But it comes through broken people like you and like me who are dearly loved by Jesus and who simply offer that love to other people. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 11, 15, which we're, we'll park this morning for the time we have left. The basis for this morning's talk And he says this, 
specifically in verses 4. Let's read, the, let's read the whole thing. Since then, starting in verse 11, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men and women. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. Who else would you rather be out of your mind for? If we are out of our mind, Paul writes, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. It's for your sake. For Christ's love, here's the key, Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. What does all of this mean? Christ's love compelling us. The New Testament, when the New Testament was written, of course, it was written in Greek. And this word compel is very interesting. It referred to the privilege that Roman officials and soldiers felt and, um, and uh, projected onto people. The word compel here had this force of weight with it to force people as well as their horses, their equipment, and their family members into public service. That's the way that the Romans meant it, and that's the way the Greeks intended it. So the Romans would come in and they would compel people, right? Compel people into service of Pax Romana. Yep, that's what it means. Our contemporary definition of compel carries this idea of driving or overpowering something or someone. It also means to have a powerful influence, an irresistible effect. But Paul identified here, here's the goods. Here's what Paul is saying. He identified that it wasn't Roman officials. It wasn't force. It wasn't even obligation that compels us to share the gospel with our fellow men and women. But it was what? Christ's love. You might say that to compel is to propel into action. And Paul's saying, listen, it's not force. It's not like share Jesus or else. Or we'll lock you up in a Roman prison. Paul's saying it's Christ's love that compels us to share the good news about Jesus. And Paul is speaking from this place of deep personal experience with Jesus. And here's where we're going to drive the point home this morning. Deep personal experience. Remember Paul? Remember Saul? He's on the road to Damascus. And as he's on his way to persecute 
to murder Christians. What? He's literally on his way to put Jesus on the cross again and kill him through the lives of the people who now claim him as Messiah. He's on the way. He's five minutes outside of Damascus. And bam, his whole life changes. He meets Jesus in this blind, literally blinding light. And his life was changed forever, set on a different trajectory. No longer will he persecute the way of Jesus like he did before. He literally had seen the light. And he spent the remainder of his life traveling around the known world to tell people about the light of the world. Something so dramatic happened to Paul in that, to Saul in that moment that his name was even changed. He identified differently from that moment forward. In the same way, in the light of what we just read in 2 Corinthians 5, in the same way, you and I were on a path away from God. We were journeying away, away, away from God. You now have a miraculous story of conversion. That there was a moment in your life For some people, it's like a blinding light, like it was for Paul. For other people, it's like a sunrise. It's gradually happening in your life where you see that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Messiah, that he is radiant, that he is beautiful. But you've had that point in your life where you've been changed, you've been transformed. And just like Jesus did for Paul, God wants to put your life on a different course for his glory. When we truly examine the depth of God's love and His beauty and His truth, we will become compelled to share it with others, just like Paul. You see, Paul couldn't help it. He couldn't help it. He had this whole story, his whole experience in the backdrop. That was the guy that blinded me so I could see the light of who he is. That was the guy who knocked me off of my horse so that I could carry in humility the gospel of who he is. That was the guy who arrested me on the way to persecute his followers to change my life, to write the words that would encourage the church forever until he comes back. Crazy! That's crazy talk! And you carry the same thing in your heart, in your life. That you, Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians that we can't help. We are compelled to share the good news of Jesus with others. In verse 14, he says that we are convinced. It's decided. The matter is closed in Paul's mind. The matter's been settled. Is the matter settled with you in your heart and your mind? Those who are thoroughly convinced that Jesus is Lord and Messiah will be compelled to share the good news with others. This is just as convicting for me to hear as it is for you. I just want to get that said. I don't have this thing of sharing my faith with other people all figured out. I'm just a beginner. I'm still trying to learn what it means to share the love of Jesus with others. But Paul is imploring us to the love of Jesus. He says the way you become convinced is not through arguments 
It's not through arguing you into the love of God, is it? Nope. That never works. It's not through reasons why you should or why you don't. It's not through guilt or manipulation. The way you become convinced is through love. The love of Jesus. Elsewhere in Romans, Paul writes this to the church at Rome. He says this, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. It was love that compelled Jesus to go to the cross. Love out of the desire of God's heart to make a way for men and women to be saved. The cross here in Romans, Paul writes, is God's demonstration on full display for all to see that God loves us. The cat's out of the bag. Love is the great persuader. Love is the difference maker. It's not just a feeling, but a deep, eternal commitment in the heart of God. It's a covenant-type love to humanity, to men and women. This is what it costs. This is the admission ticket. Love is the motivation of God's heart. And love is the compelling factor as to why we should and can share our faith in Jesus with others. It's love. That's it. No deep theological exegesis for you this morning. Ding, ding, ding. It's love. It's love. Makes all of the difference. So the challenge today is, are you convinced by Jesus' love to share him with others? We won't feel compelled to share the good news of Jesus Until we experience the love of God for ourselves. That's the hinge point right there. Until we experience the Savior on a deeply intimate level, ever increasingly so, until that happens, we will never feel compelled to share His love with others. Now, Once you've walked with Jesus for a while and you understand obedience, it's your joy to share him with others whether you feel like it or not. But the same principle is true. We will never share Jesus with others. You could take all of the evangelism courses in the world. You could could go through Alpha a million times. You could uh, sign up for equipping classes at church. You could be here every Sunday morning, front row. But until you experience the love of Jesus in a deeply profound way, in a Paul, Saul to Paul type of way, ever increasingly so for yourself, you won't ever feel freedom to share him with others. Promise. Have you, let's get at it from a, man, we're, I got to get out of here. Um, Have you ever tried sharing Jesus with others without experiencing him first? It's like the worst thing to ever do. It feels so inauthentic. It feels like, what am I, how am I wasting my time? 
What, what am I doing here? I don't even know what to do here. It's, the wor- it's really the worst thing. And the people that you're sharing him with when you're not in love with him, they feel it too, just to let you in. They feel it too. Wimber used to say, I'm a fool for Christ. Whose fool are you? If we're out of our mind, it's for the sake of Jesus. Why not be madly, deeply in love with Jesus? Then you won't be able to help but share this love of Jesus that you've experienced for yourself with other people in your life around you, with with complete strangers, with anybody and everybody. Because you found this treasure, you see, that's of eternal value and the beauty of Jesus that you just can't keep silent. You can't keep to yourself. (laughs) Living for Jesus. Last, this is it, promise. Living for Jesus. Paul writes that because Christ died for all, that those who do live should not live for themselves. He that died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Do you and I, here's the challenge, do you and I live in such a way that we cease living for ourselves and begin to live for Jesus? I'm not even talking about living for others. Paul doesn't say, he doesn't say those that live should no longer live for themselves, but, but should live for others. He doesn't say that. He says those who live should no longer live for themselves, but live for who? For Jesus. He says, go live for Jesus, and then you'll know what it means to live for others. You can't live for others without first living for Jesus. you got to live for Jesus before you understand what it truly means to live for others, to exist for others. You'll never find out what it means to live for others until you experience living for Jesus. I'm talking about really living for Jesus. Like Paul is writing here in, um, uh, with exclamation points all over the place. Living for Jesus is the effect the gospel has on us by nature repeatable? That Christ was first, like we talked about last week, in this procession of dominoes. He was the first domino. He died and was raised to life again. And we, in that procession, are to die to ourselves and live for him. A compelling life, another way to put this, is one that lives towards Jesus. When we begin to pour out of ourselves the goodness of Jesus for the sake of the world, we begin to find what our lives were really created for. We only truly begin to live for others once we see that living life centers on living for Jesus. What does it mean to live for Jesus? Living for Jesus means that everything and anything centers on him and in him. Paul is encouraging us as the church toward the only solution, that there's nothing else, there's nothing else worth giving our lives for, spending our time on, than the person of Jesus. We can't center our lives around sports or shopping. We could. 
but you can't center your life around sports and shopping and live entirely for Jesus. Might get canceled for that one. That's a pretty black and white statement I just made there. That's a, that's a line of demarcation there. You, you, you could, let's get a little bit closer to home. When we center our lives around lesser things, we find that our lives shrink up and they die. We could center our life around our spouse. We could center our lives around our kids, but it's going to leave us empty. The scriptures are clear over and over again. Center your lives around Jesus and find abundant, true life. You'll find meaning and purpose when you center your life on Jesus alone. The way to really love your spouse, the way to really love your kids, is to love Jesus with your whole heart and leave them to him because he loves them more than you do. Jesus loves your kids way more than you do. Jesus loves your marriage way more than you do. Jesus loves the world way more than you do. And when we center our lives on him and him alone, we truly begin to understand what it means to love those around us. I don't know how many other ways I can say the same thing, but I'm trying to encourage you to center your life on Jesus, to live for him. That because it's no, if you follow Christ, it's no longer you who lives. You've been crucified with him now. Remember, you died. Who you used to be is no more. You died. You went under with Christ. And Christ was raised back up again. And you were raised with Christ. You're, just like we saw on full display this morning, you are a new person. You're a new creation. And so your life will have a different focal point. No longer will you center your lives around these other lesser things. From that moment forward, now your focal point is Jesus. Now you identify with Jesus. Now you're a son of God. Now you're a daughter of God. Now you are loved. Now you are cherished. Now you do not accept shame over your life. Now you are partnering with the Holy Spirit to bring life into every corner of society. You are a new creation. It's who you are. 